episode, I talked a bit about the Bronze and Copper Ages, and how reaching the level of technological know-how so that it's possible to heat metals so you can blend them with other metals and substances, forge them into useful things, and generally work with them in a more fundamental way than is possible if you're simply chipping away at them or bending them with brute strength, grants you all sorts of additional powers than those cruder methods offer. Copper's a pretty basic material to work with as metals go, in part because of its elemental properties, and in part because it appears in nature, on earth in its pure form, so it's not something our ancestors would have had to imagine from whole cloth. They could see it, work with it, and thus had a pretty good sense of what it was and what it was capable of, even before they had any way to work with it in a more fundamental way. Bronze, an alloy of copper, with some amount of tin mixed into the copper to make it more resilient and strong and thus useful for many things, was different in that it's not natural and it doesn't occur unless we synthetically produce it. Iron is similar to copper in that it's natural, though it's also a lot stronger and thus fundamentally harder to work with, lacking the metallurgical capacity to melt it down and reshape it while in a liquid form, and steel is in this way a bit like bronze in that it is an alloy of iron, iron mixed with carbon, and variations on the theme like stainless steels have some amount of chromium blended in with the iron and carbon alongside nickel in some cases, which makes it even more complex, and thus essentially impossible to imagine if you are limited to what nature provides you in terms of practicality, and thus, often at least, your conception of materials-related possibilities is capped, with some of these substances beyond that ceiling. So part of the challenge in attaining mastery over different materials, including but not limited to metals, is discovering them and having access to the requisite natural resources like iron and copper in the first place. But then also, over time, learning that you can manipulate them in various ways, and then over time, often long, long stretches of time, generationally long periods of time in some cases, refining those methods of manipulation until it is possible to do so economically, but also typically at some kind of productive scale, allowing you to make enough of the material so you can churn out, for instance, armor and swords made out of it. Or if we're talking about ceramic goods, stuff made of clay and silica and carbon, among other substances, scaling up the process you can produce more jugs and pots and urns, more food preservation technologies and clay tablets for writing, and bricks for building homes and other structures, and that's alongside the parallel process of simply learning how to capably work with these materials once a sufficient volume of them becomes available. So while metal and clay are different sorts of substances, they are both materials that we use to make objects. We take basic earth-derived stuff and reshape it into things that are useful to us in some way, whether that means as a weapon or a means of manufacturing things, or as clothing or homes, or objects of beauty, artworks, and such. Materials, 
Science is a field focused on the many facets of these types of resources, with some practitioners working with existing materials in order to better understand them, others sussing out various means of scaling up production or iterating upon existing methods of production to make them more economical or sustainable, while still others aim to produce new materials of this kind, in some cases discovering existing but rare new materials in the sense that we haven't discovered them, at least in the scientific sense before. But often, production in this context means combining different elements or other raw materials to create new materials. Just like our ancestors figured out how to make stronger, longer-lasting ceramic pots and how to make stainless steel out of iron alloyed with other substances, the contemporary version of that field often means working in laboratories and manufacturing hubs to investigate the blending potential of various materials and to then refine successful blends to see if the resulting whatever might have utility that can be exploited for some kind of productive purpose. What I'd like to talk about today is materials science and how new innovations in the AI realm could push this field into an entirely new and much faster moving paradigm. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. As I mentioned in the intro, we've been doing what you might call materials science research and development since our earliest days of civilizational evolution, and almost certainly for quite a long while before that, too, because our deep, deep historical ancestors were all about making clever use of their environments and the materials in those environments to get a leg up over their competition. That said, modern materials science arose out of earlier differentiated fields like metallurgy and ceramics engineering, classes, and laboratory setups. Some of these educational and commercial hubs slammed together into new unified materials science departments in the 1960s when the U.S. Advanced Research Projects Agency, the precursor to the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, started throwing money at universities with laboratories that seemed capable of helping the U.S. economy and, by association, the U.S. military gain broad-scale advantages over their international peers and competition by approaching materials research not just from the 30,000-foot macro-scale view that pretty much every department had approached such things from until this point, but also the micro-scale, atomic-level perspective something more fields were beginning to attempt in the wake of World War II and the increasingly common realization that we've been missing out on a lot, not looking at things from that atomic level up till that point, and that by leveraging advanced understandings about how these substances work from other fields like physics, we could probably speed up our development of new, incredibly useful, omniversal materials like steel and aluminum dramatically. This would allow us to start our research with assumptions based on molecular and atomic science rather than empirical, observational, comparably quite slow approaches. And that meant rather than waiting to observe and measure something interesting that happened, usually as a consequence of doing a lot of fiddling around and hoping for good luck, 
over and over day after day, we could instead very intentionally start cycling through all the potential blends that these other scientific understandings have told us are both possible and might be useful or interesting for various reasons. In the decades since, materials science has expanded still further, encompassing new and ever smaller scales and new material types like polymers, plastics basically, that were not really a thing when the unified field first itself became a thing. The impact this reorganization and refocus has had on the development of new materials cannot be overstated. Among other things, innovations in this space have led to the development of artificial skin for burn victims, metal composites that have worked their way into all kinds of consumer products, making them more durable and lightweight, the production of medical hardware capable of performing magnetic resonance imaging and ultrasounds, the materials required to produce microchips of ever smaller sizes but with ever denser capacities, nanotechnologies that have allowed for the shrinking of all sorts of components and devices, and the materials that have made the rapidly increasing efficiencies of solar panels possible, alongside the materials used in wind turbine blades and in batteries, with ever embiggening capacities, safety features, and durabilities. The modern world, in essence, all modern technologies, and especially all digital goods, but also everything made out of any kind of metal or plastic that is not raw iron or copper, both of which are increasingly rare in consumer goods at least, was enabled by the field of materials science. Lacking that mid-20th century development, it's a fair bet we would have been held back in pretty much every other scientific field, and thus technological development as well. That ubiquity and importance is part of why a recent announcement by Google's DeepMind division, an artificial intelligence lab, positioned under the larger company's brand umbrella, has been getting so much attention. DeepMind has become well-known for its upending of the world of chess, the game of Go, and more recently for creating a protein structure database that contains all of its predictions for the 3D structures of folded proteins, showing how more than 200 million proteins will likely look based on their amino acid sequences alone, solving what has long been called the protein folding problem, which I spoke about at greater length in a previous episode of this show. So we've got a database full of protein ingredients, amino acids strung together for all the proteins that we've ever discovered. But just having those ingredients in the right order does not tell us what the finished proteins will look like in three dimensions in real life once they've been built. Because after those amino acids string together, they fold up into a final shape. Figuring out how a finished folded protein made up of a particular combination of ingredients, how they would actually look in real life, has thus been a time-consuming, ponderous, and expensive effort. All of science, our entire human civilization-wide scientific effort for all of history, was able to demonstrate the final folded structures of something like 170,000 of the more than 200 million proteins that we knew about up till the early 2020s. That changed, and dramatically, with DeepMind's AlphaFold program, 
which using an AI technique called deep learning was able to predict imperfectly, but with enough accuracy to successfully predict single mutation effects, what will happen if a protein has a single change to one of its amino acids and how that will impact the final shape of the folded protein, basically. It was able to predict all those known proteins in our existing database, more than 200 million of them. So these are predictions that are usable for many use cases and at what has been called a borderline miraculous or magical scale. Applying this prediction model to every single protein we know about as a species at this point. That same lab has now applied a similar AI system to predicting and simulating how various materials will work together if blended and how their fusion, the product of that blending, will behave, what properties that resulting substance will have. The company announced that they've developed a new learning system optimized for this purpose called Graph Networks for Materials Exploration, or GNOME, and the initial outcome of running this tool was the discovery of about 2.2 million new crystalline structures, about 380,000 of which are stable enough to warrant further materials science investigation. Using current methods and extrapolating on the research currently being done and funding currently available to researchers in this space around the world, it's estimated that around 736 of these 380,000 new potential materials have probably already been discovered by researchers in experimental settings, and that this stockpile is equivalent to about 800 years worth of knowledge based on current levels of investment and output. So it would take about 800 years at the current levels of research in this space to discover this many new potentially useful materials. All of which is wonderful, as like with the folded protein predictions provided by AlphaFold, this new GNOME model gives materials scientists some focused areas to be looking at, making every experiment more likely to provide us with usable outcomes, rather than the shot-in-the-dark approach that's more common when looking into unfamiliar blends of materials. Many of these 380,000 potential new structures will likely not be useful for today's purposes then, but this type of research rigs the dice so that each investigation is relatively more likely to yield something really valuable, which could prove to be hugely beneficial, especially since that catalog of potentially useful structures, like the Protein Fold Catalog, has been published and made available to whomever wants it for free. There is still a lot of work to do, of course, churning through all of these potentially useful materials, which is why another development in this space, what is sometimes called self-driving labs, is also notable and potentially vital for the more rapid development of materials science. Self-driving labs are basically lab spaces optimized for robotics that allow non-human robot arms and other hardware to perform the requisite, often slogging, ponderous, tedious work of basic materials science experimentation safely and continuously around the clock. So just as you might automate a fast food restaurant by telling some software what ingredients to combine and how to process them in order to make a burger or some fries, keeping tabs on the temperature of everything and what's been mixed with what along the way using specialized automated equipment, you can also tell some software 
what materials you want it to combine and how, and have it keep track of everything's properties throughout the process using an array of sensors, and then some robot arms or maybe just a big box with pipes and the ability to move stuff from here to there when it wants to, will combine a slew of varied substances from a catalog of options and then keep tabs on the resulting materials that come from that blending, tucking away examples for further human exploration and confirmation if they are auto-tagged as being interesting for the sorts of properties we are looking for. But otherwise, it maybe just categorizes them according to their properties, adding to the body of knowledge that we already have for such things, and giving us a sort of materials reference library that we can tap into whenever we need a specific material with specific attributes in the future. What this potentially does then is robotically automate the checking of the AI-generated catalog of potentially useful materials that has now been generated for us. The degree to which this could change the field cannot be overstated, as while that earlier 1960s-era formalization of the field, combining earlier realms of inquiry into one, was a big deal, changing everything. This next step could do the same, replacing humans, who are in many cases doing systematic, tedious work, replacing them with sleepless, emotionless, unkillable robots working from software-generated possibilities in order to provide us with a new menu of materials that we might use moving forward could further amplify all research and development in this space. This sort of development is especially important, arguably, because of all these new possibilities that we now have available to try out. The number of possible combinations grows incredibly rapidly as the number of new materials and possible materials and combinations of all the variables therein increases, and because there are only so many humans with the necessary skills and knowledge to do this kind of work. Those human researchers have become kind of a bottleneck, and they could be doing more human-centric work in this field rather than stuff like this that could theoretically be automated. So they are good at what they do, but they are mostly tasked with responsibilities that could be handed off to a robot, at least to some degree. Their hands and eyes replaced with robot versions of the same, nothing lost in the transition, and possibly a lot to be gained by swapping them out, including the optimization of those boring, predictable processes, and the ability to work more AI into the loop, maybe. Those AI empowered to make more predictions and assumptions as new data from these experiments roll in, further speeding up the process of development and further optimizing the economics of this type of research alongside, hopefully at least, the tangible fruits of that research. All of this, of course, is still bleeding-edge new science and technology, and there is a non-zero chance that some component of all of this, everything I just told you about, will end up not being as useful or accurate or economical as predicted or claimed, or that there will be some other glaring flaw that makes some aspect of this broader potentiality not as desirable as it currently seems to be from where we are standing right now. And that might mean we have some wonderful new predictions to work from, but are stuck with the same relatively plodding pace of working through them that we have now. Or, in contrast, the opposite. Maybe those predictions turn out to be not as great as advertised, and instead we have these super-fast experimental robots in our arsenal, but a much smaller menu of potential materials to work through, which would also limit what we can do with these self-driving laboratories, and thus the output of those laboratories, at least in this field and at this moment. 
this is maybe an exciting moment for a field that touches essentially every other field, though. And if even a single-digit percentage of the purported possibilities of these new developments turn out to be accurate and practically manifestable, a lot of things could change very quickly. Across many aspects of many industries, similar to the development of steel or plastics, but possibly even more rapidly deployed, and at a scale that the folks innovating those earlier wonder materials could not have dreamed of. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Drunk on All Your Strange New Words by Eddie Robson. This is a science fiction novel, speculative fiction if you prefer, that features a translator, but a translator who works for the cultural attaché for an alien species that has developed a peaceful diplomatic relationship with humans on Earth. This alien species, though, does not communicate the way that we do, and for those able to hear them in their minds and to then translate what they're trying to say back and forth, the act of engaging in that kind of translation process causes similar effects of getting just wildly sloppy drunk. So this is a book from the standpoint of one such translator, somebody who's kind of middling in that field, and then something happens that causes some potentially dramatic conflict between the people and peoples involved. And while the world building itself and the fleshing out of what this type of diplomatic relationship might look like between humans and this type of alien species is interesting, seeing this character work through this conflict through their eyes and thoughts to me, was the best part of the book. It's interesting and often quite funny, and a good fun read. Even if you're not usually into science fiction, this isn't hard science fiction, so it probably wouldn't be a turnoff in that regard. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Drunk on All Your Strange New Words by Eddie Robson. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.